Hello everyone, and thank you for listening. This is the Incremental Gains Podcast. Today's going to be slightly different. I've wanted to do this for a while, and I'm going to be recording a chapter of an up-and-coming audiobook that Incremental Gains has been putting together. It's basically just going to explain my thoughts, my experiences, and really bring us up to date as to how incremental gains came about. So I'm going to be reading this and recording this. And as I go through the the chapters and the sentences, it might trigger something in me that I want to elaborate on. And I'll just start talking again. So some of it's going to be read, but some of it's going to be actually, actually me talking to you. Incremental gains, an audio book. Mental Wealth, Chapter 1 At the age of 23, 2004, I moved from St. Helens, Merseyside to Reading, Berkshire to pursue a career in the MOD police. Fast forward 11 years and in 2015 I left my job as a police officer for the MOD and relocated 200 miles back to Merseyside. In that time, I had changed, St. Helens had changed, They say that the same man can never step in the same river twice, as he is not the same man, and it is not the same river. The only constant in life is change. Just like the river, it constantly flows with an unstoppable force that you either acquiesce to, or you get dragged along regardless. One of my favourite quotes ever is by Tony Robbins. The quality of your life is directly proportionate to the amount of uncertainty you can handle. I think when you're young, or certainly when I was younger, you don't have the stress or the worry. And we're happy to go along for the ride. But as you get older, I think it's fair to say, and I definitely do it, I overthink, and I put too much pressure on myself. And this trait definitely doesn't contribute to accepting change. 11 years in my life, aged 22 to 34, I spent down in Reading, Berkshire. And then to move back up north to St. Helens after 11 years, To say that transition was hard was an understatement. So this is where this audiobook begins, at this transition point in my life. The feelings, emotions, the thought processes and the realisations that I came to later are a direct influence of the books that I read, articles, podcasts, the videos and the content that are consumed. However, it's all well and good taking in this information, but how much do you actually apply to your life? It's something that came up in an episode recently that I did with my good friend Mike Reynolds. We talked about like the the reading that we've both done and the stuff we've listened to, but it means nothing without actually applying those principles and the lessons that you've you've got from it into your life. It wasn't long after making the decision that the enormity and complexity dawned on me. First of all, I needed to get rid of the flat that I was renting. I needed to find a new job. My girlfriend Laura needed to find a new job too. We needed somewhere to live. That meant saving money for deposit. I'd need to travel to job interviews. I'd need to transport my belongings 200 miles back up north. (sighs) It was exhausting. There were so many moving parts. And it wasn't like we were only moving down the road. To top this off as well, I was having car issues at the time. At one point, I remember driving up the M6 and black smoke was bellowing out the back of my car. Every time I switched to fourth gear, this had happened. Turns out that my car was actually using oil as fuel as there was a leak. When I took it to the garage, 
the, the fella who actually uh, took my car was surprised that it hadn't actually blown up on the motorway. So obviously I'm thankful that it didn't. Now, I'm not saying this to get a pat on the back or a sympathy vote. I'm just stating in an objective way some of the obstacles I needed to overcome. There were lots of things going on, lots of things to juggle. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. I just wish I'd have been that objective at the time. But you know how it is. I'm sure you've felt this way before, where your mind is just chocker with different scenarios, trying to predict what would happen down the road, trying to create a reality that hasn't existed. A lot of time I was coming up with worst case scenarios. What if I didn't get a job? We might end up homeless. We needed money, food. How can I feed? How can I keep a roof over the head if I don't have a job? What about getting time off for interviews? Do I have to tell my employer I'm going for another job? I'm planning on leaving. None of these people knew. I hadn't had an interview in 11 years. I've not got a CV. What I now know is that I was causing myself anxiety. I was creating anxiety. In the worlds of Paul Mort, we create these things. None of it has actually happened. Only in my perception of reality does this happen. So there is no reality. Only a perception of reality. I'll come back to that point later. We will look at as we had a really good support network around us. And I appreciate that some people aren't that lucky. I found it hard at the time to just shut off my constant thoughts and internal commentary, which was predominantly negative. It's funny that, isn't it, Al? Our self-talk is predominantly negative. We don't actually congratulate ourselves a lot of the time and tell ourselves good things and give ourselves a pat on the back. A lot of the time it's negative. I was constantly stressed. As you can imagine, this caused frictions amongst friends, amongst family. It affected my sleep, eating habits, motivation, basically my overall health. What made matters worse was that even after 11 years serving in the police, on paper I didn't actually have any qualifications that were recognised by any other industry. My first instinct was to look at security, but all my experience meant nothing without the government recognised badge. Those who were listening who were, who were part of the security detail, you'll, you'll understand that you need the SIA badge. I started to question my whole career path and how little support there actually was. I now realise one other thing as well. I was going through a kind of grieving process and I was looking for someone to blame. I was looking for someone to help. But at the end of the day, why should there have been anybody to help? My responsibility is to look after me. My responsibility is to look after me. I needed to take ownership of my situation, not be relying on other people and other entities to step in and help. Don't get me wrong, this isn't easy for me to write, to admit to some of the emotions I felt. But I really did feel at the time that I was taking two steps back. I was the person who had moved out to St. Helens. All my family was proud of what I'd made of myself. I started to feel I had let people down. Because here I was, after 11 years, planning to move back. Although I was never diagnosed as depressed, I certainly ticked all but one box on the NHS website of signs to look for in a person suffering from depression. The only box that I didn't tick was that I had thoughts about harming myself. I never got to that stage, and I think, again, that's because of the support network I had around me of parents and friends. This never happened to me, but I do realise how slippery that slope is, and if you feel like you've got no other choices or options and there's no way out, I can certainly empathise and see how people would come to a decision to take their own life. 
I think it's important to highlight these emotions and what I felt and the thoughts that I had. And they're the same thoughts that anybody dealing with massive change will have and they will have to deal with them. So I'm only talking here from my own experience. I'm not saying this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. I'm talking from my own experience and hopefully the way I dealt with it, the things that I used may be able to help you. It's about peer-to-peer support. That's everything that I'm trying to create with incremental gains is not tell you what to do. It's tell you what I used in my experience and maybe that could help you. Maybe it won't. Maybe it does not, doesn't fit you. But at least you have a good starting place. So what people didn't realise was how institutionalised I'd become. Daily routines, set times for tasks, weapon prep, daily checks. Your whole day for 12 hours was mapped out. Procedures become your life and it's very hard to change the habits formed over years and years and then to start over. Although I had family and friends around me, people assumed that you're the person you were beforehand. I was a young lad, I was 23 when I made the move and I changed in so many ways throughout the years but I was expected to almost slot back in as, as though nothing had ever happened. I had no coping mechanisms to deal with the stress management, to control my self-talk, to deal with the anxiety. There was no heads up as to how to adapt to this change. No one teaches you this stuff in school. What I now know. So I've just told you about the mental aspects that I struggle with the most. I can look back now, obviously hindsight's a wonderful thing. And with everything that, that has happened, at the time I felt like I didn't have control over my life. There were too many parts to juggle. And it all seemed insurmountable. That's what's caused a lot of my anxiety and over a prolonged period, stress, chronic stress and depression. I was being reactive to the situation rather than taking, to con taking control. So now I'm going to explain some of the methods that I used that were integral in helping me and my girlfriend Laura get through this period of change. As many people forget or don't realise the effect this has on the other people in the family. They are living this experience too. They have their own anxieties, their own worries, as well as trying to support you as well at the same time. What you'll find is everything affects everything that you do. This may become as a this may become a regular theme in this book. There's a quote by Jordan Peterson. You are going to pay a price for everything you do and everything you don't do. You don't get to choose not to pay a price. You get to choose which poison you're going to take. So everything has a knock-on effect. Whatever you do in life, whatever decision you make, whatever choice you make, it has a consequence. It might be a good consequence. It might be a bad consequence. That depends on the state of your mind at the moment when you make that decision. However, they do have consequences. You're going to pay a price for everything that you do and even everything that you don't do. Not doing something has a consequence. But you get to choose what poison you're going to take. That's what Jordan Peterson is trying to say. Control what you can control. You may read this or listen to this and be thinking, well, well, it's pretty obvious that. That's nothing new, Dave. Or I already know that. It's one thing knowing. And like we said at the beginning, another thing is to actually do it, is to actually implement this in your life, to change your mindset, to change your perspective. Stoicism became a real guide for me 
on how to cope with a lot of the issues I was dealing with. And I'll have a dedicated chapter to this later on. The phrase, control what you can control, gave me real insight, gave me a real mindset shift. And also there's a, there's a practical aspect to it. Spoke about it earlier that after all my experience within the MOD police, 11 years, on paper, I actually had no qualifications that related to any other jobs. But instead of concentrating on the aspects that I didn't have control over, I could certainly control things like putting a CV together, setting up job alerts, sending my email online, taking my CV into local recruitment offices, rehearsing interview questions and techniques. I also looked at my finances and how I could start to save and take control of my outgoings. Cutting out nights out and the takeaways, the booze, gym memberships got cancelled. I bought a kettlebell so I could work out at home. I started to run outside. These things may sound so simple, but in reality, when darkness takes over and you allow the mind to dance from one thought to another, to extrapolate, before you know it, you've built a whole new world in your head that was based on negative thoughts and limiting beliefs. These simple tasks helped me to remain in the now, in the present. They allowed me to take a little bit of control back. They allowed me to have ownership, the ownership that I spoke about earlier. Simple stuff really, but definitely not easy, especially when your head is wrecked. Now this next statement may take a while to sink in. After you've read it or listened to it, just stop, pause the recording and think about it for a second. All you really have control over in life are your thoughts and your actions. I'll say that again. All you really have control over in life are your thoughts and your actions. Let that sink in. For me, this was a game changer. It changed my perspective massively on how to deal with change. Don't get me wrong, I still fall back into the old thought patterns, but I'm working on it and it's a practice and it should be treated as such. Let me explain what I mean. Life will happen one way or another. Sometimes you perceive it as bad. Sometimes you perceive it as good. We'll talk about perception and how to how to create a different perception later on. But all you have control over is what you think about in any given situation and how you behave, your action, what you take. And that's a decision. One of the main issues I discussed was that my mind was always thinking about the future. But it wasn't an objective perspective of the future. It was influenced by fears, worries and insecurities. I allowed these thoughts to become dominant. What I mean to say is that I gave these thoughts energy. I gave them fuel and they grew and they grew and they spiraled out of control. One way I learned to control this pattern was to live and exist in the present moment. Yeah, I'll give you a minute, yeah. I know how that sounds. You're probably thinking, this is some hippie bullshit, this, or part of some mad cult. But allow me to explain. When you're in the present moment, completely anchored in what is happening now, then you've got that control that we spoke about before. You control your thoughts in this moment and you control your actions in this moment. It's all you have this moment. You can't change the past and the future hasn't happened. Every time you catch yourself lost in the dance of the mind like I was doing, I didn't have that awareness at the time, but now I've learned these things. And if you can catch your, your mind dancing and getting lost and creating this future, if it's dwelling on the past or worrying about the future, I learned to bring my attention back to the breath. That's what mindfulness is. 
taking your attention from thinking these thoughts about extrapolating into the future and learning to be present. Just breathe. That's right, breathe. Concentrate on your breathing. This will allow you to be present. Fill the air up with lungs. Breathe through your abdomen. Feel the shoulders rise and fall with each breath. Breathe through the nose, six seconds in. And six seconds out. That means you'll be breathing five or six times per minute. Approximately. I've since learned through reading some of the, the books about the topic and listening to some podcasts that this is the same breathing rate of prayer. It is also the same breathing rate of various different religious ceremonies and prayers and mantras. It's the same breathing rate as transcendental meditation when you're doing your mantra. It's a simple technique to slow down that cycle of thoughts in the mind. My aim was to just highlight where the anxiety and the stress lie. And it's always in dwelling on the past and worrying about the future. The power is in controlling your thoughts and the actions in this moment. Because it's all you really ever have. I was constantly worrying about getting a job. Paying bills. For some reason, when I dialed down into it, it always comes back for me to the thought of not being able to provide, of not having enough money. One day I'll get to the bottom of this belief, but it's still a work in process. I was still getting worked up about going for interviews, then getting nervous about what if I didn't get the job, and then getting nervous about what I, if I did get the job, a whole new set of problems and concerns. I'd need somewhere to live. What about the deposit on a house? On and on and on, creating worries, creating stress. Remember, I created this stress. I was the one creating it. I was constantly extrapolating and thinking one thing after another, creating a reality that hasn't happened. Think about the practical things you can control and take the time to practice keeping yourself from worrying about a future that hasn't happened yet, other than inside your mind. As a side note, I just want to point out that obviously serious cases of depression and chronic stress where people are dealing with extreme circumstances such as PTSD and grief should be dealt with, should be dealt with by a medical professional. In this audio series, I'm just expressing my own opinion about what worked for me. There's nothing wrong with using professionals, that's what they're there for. I'm not here to tell you what to do, I'm giving you my experience and what worked well for me. Just one thing before we go, and something that, that helped me really get my head around the thoughts and how powerful they can be. It's the old parable about a Cherokee Indian, and a story about a battle that goes on inside the mind. A battle between two wolves. One wolf is evil, it is anger, envy, jealousy, worry, pride, regret, sorrow, guilt, and it's ego. The other wolf is good. It is joy, peace, love, kindness, empathy, compassion, and hope. The young boy asks the Cherokee Indian, which wolf wins? The one that you feed, the chief answers. The one that you feed will always win. Who am I now? As I was reading through the previous chapters, it might sound like I have all the answers and I'm sorted. And I don't want to sound like I'm actually telling people what to do. I'm just using my own experience again. 
the things that I now know, I didn't know then at the time. They had to be learned. They had to be applied. And everyone can do this. Experience is a great teacher. I don't profess to know everything. My experience, again, it's, it's anecdotal. It was what worked for me. It was what helped me at the time. I believe that the, the things I learned and the emotions that I felt can help others, but it's not a one-size-fits-all. If you feel something different, then that is how you feel. You can then maybe try and challenge the feelings and beliefs, but no one can tell you the right way to feel. I still fall back into the same old habits and I struggle to heed my own advice. It's a practice and it must be treated as such. It's like going in the gym. Create a routine and these practices and you build them into your structures, into your daily structure. And incrementally and sustainably, you can create these patterns and these strategies that'll help you deal with some of these issues that we're talking about. So continuous and consistent practice. That is why this is arguably the most difficult aspect to write about because these are the issues that I still currently deal with. And it's a question I reckon everyone dealing with massive change will eventually ask themselves, who am I now? This is not an easy question to answer. I identified for so long with being an MOD police officer for 11 years. That was who I was. That was what I had known from the age of 23 to 34, a massive part of my early life. And, it, and now that was gone. The lifestyle, the social life, the status, uniform, routine, patterns, knowledge, procedures, structure, chairman of command, salary and security had all gone. I had to question why I was so attached to this identity and why it was so hard to let go. It was all to do with what other people thought of me. Now I can sum up a lot of the decisions and choices that I have made in life with this statement in mind. The fear of failure and the fear of not fitting in or being ridiculed. I think they're ingrained deep into our DNA. Tens of thousands of years ago, we would have been outed from the tribe. And this would have been certain death or the inability to find a partner to procreate. So these fears, the fear of failure, the fear of not fitting in and the fear of being ridiculed are ingrained deep, deep inside our, our, um, our psychosis and our DNA. But we don't live in those times anymore and we still have these fears and they're almost not suited to the current society that we find ourselves in. My job defined me as a person and I was proud of what I had achieved. I felt like I had let people down. I was so ashamed, I was embarrassed. Did people see me as a failure? Did people mutter under the breath that I couldn't hack it or that I told you so? No, they never again. I was creating this reality. The reason why this is so hard to write and talk about is because it is about my ego. So let's make sure we're on the same page. The best way I've found to describe ego is this. Ego is a complex cluster of energy tied to a history that begins at birth and is added to daily. When someone calls your name, an entire history is summoned to attention. So it's a culmination of everything that has happened to you in your life, but your version of it, experienced through all your different senses and filtered through all your frames of reference. So where you grew up, what town you grew up in, what school you went, the influences of your parents, the things you've read, the telly you've watched, the beliefs of your grandparents, the peers you knock about with. Everything helps you form your ego. Like it or not, all these things influence us. 
And it's from these influences and the events that happen that we make up a story. And that is that story is who you perceive yourself to be. Have I confused you here? <laughs> right. So the ego isn't real. It might seem real, but it's a false sense of who you are. You almost have seen Fight Club. We all know the character Tyler Durden, Brad Pitt. Tyler Durden says, you are not your job. You're not how much money you have in the bank. You are not the car you drive. You're not the contents of your wallet. You are not your fucking car keys. Change is the only constant in life. Everything around you is changing from the weather, the trees, wildlife, architecture, technology, relationships, even right down to a cellular level. Your body's changing by the second. Remember when we spoke at the beginning? The same man can never step into the same river twice. He's not the same man. It's not the same river. So if that's the case, then who am I? Who am I? Well, we're many things. Mums, dads, sisters and brothers, husbands, wives, boyfriends and girlfriends. They're just some of the labels that the society throws around. We're humans constantly changing and evolving. We are our emotions and our thoughts and our thoughts change like the wind. We are the energy we put out into the world. We are our intentions, good and bad. We are not who we used to be. And we don't know who we will be in the future. We are who we are in this moment only. Think about this after you've listened to this post. I know it's a morbid thing to think about. But I think it emphasises the point that I'm trying to make. When the inevitable happens. And we eventually leave this life. Think about this. Why will people attend your funeral? Why will they attend your funeral to say their goodbyes? I guarantee it won't be because of how much money you've got in the bank. It won't be what clothes you wear. It won't be whether you got a GCSE C in maths. It won't be what you've created. People remember how you made them feel. They don't remember what you do but they will remember how you made them feel. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.